0: Welcome to Southern Salon Podcast. I'm Amy Clark Spain. And
1: I'm Brittany Robertson.
0: And I should probably say, Brittany, that we're here at work today and we're taking time. You're going to hear sounds probably in the hallway. You may hear someone knock on the door. You're going to hear people talking around us. And so that's just the nature of podcasting when and where you can.
1: But it's okay because we're back <laughs> together and we're happy about
0: that. We are. And we're masked and we're that's, distanced. That's true. So But it's kind of cool to be podcasting together for once. Absolutely. Instead of remotely. So our podcast is about culture and communication, and I guess this is the culture part of it because this summer, one of my projects was writing about a record that I found in an old talking machine. And for those of you that don't know what a talking machine is, it's a Victrola that you wind up, it's, it's the old-timey record player that you wind up, you put a record on it, and, and the turntable would turn. And people would keep their records in the cupboard. It's, it's a cupboard, a wooden cupboard. People would keep their records in the base of it. And um, my grandfather gave it to me before he passed away. And so I had this record player. And I don't know. Are you an antique person? I, I love am. antiques. I am, and I'm just sitting here trying to think, envision this in my head, and wondering
1: how many other records were in
0: there. Oh well, tons. I have. Li- I haven't counted them all up, but there were there were so many. And these are the. If you know anything about albums, these are the 78, really thick 78 shellacs that were cut in the 1920s. Oh, wow. So these were the very first, early, very first generation of records. These talking machines had needles that were extremely thick. Mm -hmm. And so my grandfather, you know, I can remember because we had more than one of those. And I can remember like on snow days, he lived next door to us and he couldn't work on snow days because he worked building houses. So we were home on snow days from school he'd walk over and hang out with us. And one of the things he would do is he'd wind up the record player and show us how those records worked. And so I have that memory, which I think is one of the reasons that he gave it to me. So let me fast forward in time. I'm an adult. I'm at Natural Tunnel State Park, which is one of the places that we said people should go. Mm -hmm. You know, we're taking a hayride through Natural Tunnel State Park. And my friend um, Bill Kaywood, who is an interpreter at Natural Tunnel and a high school teacher at Union High School, he was leading this this hayride through Rye Cove. And Rye Cove, if you're not from around here, is this beautiful, beautiful scenic rural community. What between Duffield and Gate City, Gate Midway. City, it's around that area. So we're taking this hayride, he stops and he tells a story. And we we stop the hayride in front of a, a field, like a pasture. And you see cows grazing and mountains in the distance and things like that. It's very quiet. And he tells the story of the Rykoe cyclone. Now, have you ever heard the story of the Rykoe cyclone? I have. And,
1: you know, again, for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with our area, I think we could preface this by saying we don't have that type of weather here very Mm-mm. often. Um, really, you could count on one hand the number of times anything like that's ever happened here. We live surrounded by mountains. And so mm-hmm. we're oftentimes protected from any kind of, you know, tornado weather or anything like that just because it usually breaks up before it hits the mountains. However, Rye Cove does have a lot of flat land. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up hearing about it and it was kind of a phenomenon because of, where we live. You know, it doesn't really happen that often, but um, I mean, yes, the story, you know, has been passed down for generations in this area. Just,
0: I think it's weird that I grew up and never heard about it. And it makes me sad that I didn't hear about it until after my grandparents were had passed because I would have asked them so yeah. many questions about this. Yeah, And this was in the early, I think the early 2000s when I heard this story for the first time. So he said that a schoolhouse, and this was a This was uh, 1929 when this occurred. So schoolhouses in rural communities in 1929 were wooden. They they housed all the way from first grade to 12th grade, all in the same school. And this particular one was pretty big, and it had two stories. It had a wood-burning stove or maybe two. It may have had more than one. I think it had one. And um, it was a pretty large structure when you look at the before and after pictures. Mm-hmm. And so it's sitting in the middle of, of this farmland, which would not have been unusual in 1929. You know, the roads were not what they are now. Mm-hmm. This cyclone about, the kids were outside in 1929. This was in May. They, were, they had been playing. A light rain started to fall and they were starting to file in from having been outside on the playground. And people who witnessed the event, farmers who were standing in their fields, women who were home, you know, putting laundry out, they noticed the clouds, the sky started to turn a yellowish color Mm -hmm. and the wind picked up. And literally, and we know that this happens with tornadoes, literally within a matter of a couple of minutes, Mm -hmm. everything had turned Dark, the wind had picked up, and this cyclone just ground its way over the mountain and down this field mm-hmm. and took out this schoolhouse. Yeah. And so, what happened was it lifted the roof, it caused the wooden structure to collapse. This is what you know, witnesses said. And then, of course, there was a fire in the wood stove because you know, in May around here, it mm-hmm. can still be a little bit chilly, it caught on fire. So there was a lot of wind, there was the fire, and when all of it was over, it had killed the teacher and 12 students and injured 54. Oh, goodness. So it was probably the worst thing that the community had ever seen, and certainly the worst thing that had ever happened in terms of losing that many children. Well, and if you go back to think about that time frame,
1: you know, A... They didn't have National Weather Service back then, Mm -mm. you know, so there was no warning. There was no, you know, if you think about it now, if there's, I mean, I I know our schools have shut down before for a potential tornado or severe weather, you know, so there was no warning, no way to get out, no, and then we're traveled slower back then, and I'm sure that escalated the injury, you know, being able to treat people and things like that.
0: Yeah, so... When I inherited that talking machine, coming back to the Victrola, yeah, I was going through the records, and I came across a record called "The Cyclone of Rye Cove. No, and it was the Carter family. So, A. P. Carter, Sarah, and Maybell, and and if you don't know much about the early roots of country music, they are the ones yes. credited for the roots of country music. I mean, they traveled from Hilton's where they live to Bristol and, and, and that for frame of
1: reference, I mean, that's an, within an hour of, of the college where Amy and I work. So it's, it's close by.
0: Hilton's is also where um, the famous Carter fold, the barn where they still I have, you should put
1: a little plug in there. <laughs> visit the Carter fold if you've never been Yes.
0: There. People gather there for good music and, and people, Flatfoot, mm-hmm. and um, that's the uh, Carter family. June, you may have heard of June Carter Cash. Those of you that are into music, um, and Johnny Cash, mm-hmm. her husband. So June was Maybell's daughter. Mm-hmm. She also invented the famous scratch style of picking. Mm-hmm. Maybell did. So they're known for a lot. I mean, but and this would, had not was not their first record, but. There were two of these records, and so one had been played so much that they had a second copy in the Victrola, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. I didn't know that there was a song, you know, The the Cyclone of Ry Cove. So I started to dig into this story just a little bit more, you know, coming up on the next anniversary, which was two years ago, because it took two years to get this story written and published in Oxford American. So I I found someone actually passed along to me this wonderful document, and it was a thesis that Frances Fry-Reed had written for her master's degree at ETSU in 1971, Mm -hmm. I believe. She had interviewed the survivors of the Rykoff cyclone and recorded all of these interviews Uh, transcribed these interviews and put them together in this thesis where she also discussed the, the cyclone of Rykov, this song. Uh So in this thesis, she talks about how the song became a ballad. It was, Mm -hmm. it was, and a ballad is a song that tells a story. It's a narrative, usually tragic, Mm -hmm. right? It's usually about love or some other tragedy. In this case, it was about the tragedy of the community Mm -hmm. losing these children it was re-recorded. It was it was passed down through families, and when a, when so, when a when a ballad when that happens with a ballad, it takes on these different verses and different variations because people add their own words wow. or they change words. When you when you're re- singing something from memory, you're going to change your words, and so that's what the rest of her thesis is about. So all of this started to come together, and I thought this is more than just you know, coincidence that mm-hmm. all of this would happen. I'm I just I want to put all of this together in a story because I hadn't seen all of it together in a story. When I started looking into it a little bit more and I read the accounts of the people who were actually there and I read the interviews, it's just really startling mm-hmm. to hear people talk about being flying through the air but not remembering, you know, only remembering pieces of it or the storm hitting and then they wake up an hour later, and they're in the middle of a field, or 30 minutes later, and they don't know how they got there. The principal, Principal Noblen, um, talks about, in his interview, ending up, you know, finding himself standing in a pond, but not remembering how he got there. And this is, you know, this is part of what I teach, is, is qualitative research methods, which includes interview and oral history collection. And this is one of the reasons that I am such a an advocate of oral history because mm-hmm. if you don't preserve and collect people's stories, because she collected all of it, I mean, there were newspaper accounts, right. but they're very objective. And she she did have newspaper accounts of that. But when you put together the newspaper accounts plus the actual stories that people told her, you get such a rich picture of what happened. And sure. I mean, the, the way that people describe the sky, the way that the farmer's And those of you who are listening, you should just see my hands because I'm waving my hands all over the place. The (laughs) the sky was yellow. The farmers talked about hearing a train coming. You know, it sounded like a train coming when that cyclone hit. And can you imagine being the mother Mm -hmm. of children in that school and watching through the window and knowing that that's happening and you can't do anything about it? When this occurred, A.P. Carter got in his car and drove – to the site because he figured that they were going to need help. And they did because what happened was people came from all over. They came with buckets to put the fire out. They came with tractors and cars to try to pull the tender away to, you know, when you separate it so that the fire would go out to find the bodies to help the hurt and the injured, you know, the injured I'm kids.
1: Just, I'm trying to put my, wrap my brain around that and, and think about how we would go about a search and rescue. Now, in
0: 1929. Versus what they would have had to have done and how primitive that probably was mm-hmm. back then. So, and what you had to do, and you think about it, it had been raining, the roads were muddy. These were not paved roads. Right. Think about what cars looked like in 1929, how easy it was for the tires to get stuck. Mm-hmm. If people had to go a distance to get to the, you know, the trains that ran at that time to get people on trains to get to the hospital, it was, I imagine, a very a horrifying situation. Mm-hmm. Scary. You would have heard the sounds of people, mm-hmm. injured people. There would have been smoke, mm-hmm. just debris everywhere. So that's what AP Carter saw when he arrived. Mm-hmm. And so he helped at the scene and then he drove home and he wrote this song the the cyclone of Rykov. and the the song is um and you can find uh, an excerpt of the Carter family singing it uh-huh. on YouTube the last stanza is is basically talking through the perspective of the children who died and it's almost like a prayer you know mm-hmm. I guess it was his way of processing what he had seen. And I can imagine that that probably stayed in his mind. I mean, that probably never left his mind. I mean, can you imagine no. being, being part of that? And I had never heard of the song until I found the record. I'd never heard of the song. And so that happened. And then you probably, I know that you know this, a tornado <laughs> or a, a small cyclone hit our neighborhood
1: mm-hmm.
0: in, 20 t- in March of 2008. And well, and I was expecting my son. Mm. Um, I was due in April, so I was really big at that time. But I remember driving into my neighborhood and the trees all looked like toothpicks that had been snapped in two, like all of the trees, those that hadn't been uprooted. So that was my frame of reference when I started thinking about this, and and thank goodness no one got hurt mm-hmm. in that particular event but you leave your neighborhood and all the trees are standing and you come home and all the power lines are down and the trees are snapped and everything is jagged and yeah. it looks like a bomb went off yeah. i didn't know what my house looked like and my house was still standing yeah. I couldn't get to my driveway. I had to park at the library nearby and climb up the hill. I literally climbed up the hill on my hands and knees. <laughs> it's kind of pitiful to think about, but then we are a big this. pregnant woman climbing climb up the hill, the hill and then trying to run as best you can yeah. to your house. Cause I still couldn't see my house when I got to the top of the hill. I didn't know if my dog was still alive. Right. I didn't know if my cat was still alive. I didn't, you know, my husband was away in Kentucky and we didn't have our children mm-hmm. yet. Got to the house. All the shingles had been pulled off nice. the roof, and we had slate shingles, oh my so they became hatchets flying through the air. I'm sure. They one was embedded in the tree next door. It's so it's by the grace of God nobody got hurt because oh can you imagine? Nice. We found pieces of our house down in the stadium at the um, the football field down down below our hill. So when I got there, our, our fence had been pulled up, our chain link fence. Our gutters had been ripped off and were corkscrewed around the tree in the backyard. Our dog was gone, but when I called for her and called for her, she came running back. Oh, okay. Yeah. And and so she had torn though before she left, she had torn her bed. She had this dog bed that was full of feathers and it was it was in complete shreds. <laughs> so I I can't imagine how terrifying that was. And our cat hid out in a drawer, an open drawer yeah. in the bedroom, <laughs> which was mm-hmm. smart. So it there was a lot of damage and okay. we spent the first three months of our baby's life living with my parents while the house, you know, we put the house back in order yeah. um because it was there was so much damage done. But but like I said, that's nothing. That's nothing compared to what those families had to deal with in nineteen twenty nine. Well
1: and again, I just keep I just keep going back to the the, the you know, what life was like then in general and how slow things probably were to happen Mm -hmm. and to move. And, you know, one thing I've never, I've heard a lot about the cyclone growing up, um, you know, living in Scott County myself. One of the things I never asked or heard really, I know that it impacted the school area. Did it go beyond that?
0: Okay. That's a good question. Yes. So there were several cyclones up and down the eastern seaboard at that time. So it was kind of like that particular month was a really bad month in terms of tornadoes. Mm-hmm. But it was just weird because it happened in places
1: mm-hmm. where you don't normally, it was just right. a
0: weird weather event. Yeah. But yes, there were multiple cyclones. Um, and I think there were people hurt yeah. all the way as far south as Florida wow. um, at that particular time. And so the, the one that in particular
1: that's, that hit in Rye Cove, did it go beyond the school? Or did it went through this field?
0: Went through this field, and then it was over. I mean, it was literally over and in so a couple in, of in minutes. My mind,
1: I'm, I'm creating this picture in my mind of this wide open field with nothing in it, essentially, except a school in the middle of it. And, and you know, that, that to me is crazy to imagine that it managed to just go right towards that school. Right. And, um, you know, that's full of people.
0: I was just going to read some a couple of these lyrics to you, Brittany. And I will, we will link on our social media pages if any of you are interested in seeing some of the images of the landscape in 1929 after the cyclone happened and link an actual recording of the Carter family song. We'll link that to it. But just listen to these words. When the cyclone appeared, it darkened the air, yet the lightning flashed over the sky and the children all cried, don't take us away and spare us to go back home. There were mothers so dear and fathers the same that came to this horrible scene, searching and crying. Each found their own child dying on a pillow of stone. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. Oh, give us a home far beyond the blue skies where storms and cyclones are unknown, and thereby life's strand will clasp this glad hand their children in a heavenly home. So that goes, you know, and that's another way that they processed this was their faith. Mm-hmm. You know, these this was a community of faith. and. Sure. And believing in a better place for their children, um, I think, helped them. Certainly didn't ever make the pain go away, but I'm sure that it made a difference in processing. And I think culturally, that's one of the things that music does Mm -hmm. for us. and, And music can help us process and music can help us preserve. And here in the Central Appalachians, that's such an important aspect of our way of life. Absolutely. So I'm wondering now, like going back
1: to the history of it, how many did you say?
0: Twelve kids died and the teacher right. and, the, and 54 injured. So did any of the 54 injured? Did they
1: succumb to their injuries? Or? I
0: think some did. I would have to go back and look, yeah. to be specific, to be sure about the specifics. They did preserve the school bell, the actual really? school bell, and if you go to the Rye Cove community, there's a memorial with a school bell inside um, that you can visit that's got all of the kids' names and the teachers' names um, imprinted. Wow. Yeah, I do know. I've seen that before. I did not. I figured that
1: that's what it was. So that school was not rebuilt, correct?
0: That school, well, they rebuilt, but that particular school year, you know, um, I think the next school year was was put on hold until they rebuilt the school. Yeah. And 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 the memorial was created in 1930. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that they don't put those in history books. Yeah. And, and I think I think we have to remember, too, that local history is just as important as the other kinds of history. You Absolutely. know, I made sure that my kids know this story and I took them to that memorial. And I always involve them when I'm doing research for a piece of writing that I'm doing. But I didn't want them to grow up and find out, you know, I don't want them to grow up and find out things happened after they're already adults when they can ask questions now. But gosh, I wish, I wish, and I've said this so many times, I wish I could have asked my great grandmother about that. Well, and you know, I love the fact that you're bringing that up because, you know, again, I have a, and I know you do too, I've got
1: older grandparents. Um, My grandmother's in her later seventies and and I think, and and I don't do, I often think I need to sit down with her. Mm-hmm. I need to record some of the stories about when she's growing up because you know when we think of the olden days we're thinking about you know the early 1900s and you know that generation of people they're 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 not here anymore mm-hmm. you know the 1930s 40s those those folks are getting older and so much of so much history happened in that time period yes. you know and I feel like there's so many valuable lessons in that time period that I want my kids to know, uh-huh. you know, and I'm going back to the 1929 era. You know, my 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 grandparents were not born in that era necessarily, but you know, my and I'm sure you're in the same scenario. My grandparents walked to school.
0: Uh-huh. They walked a
1: mile to school. They carried yeah. a lunch bucket. They, you know, they lit the fire in the in the one room schoolhouse, and life was hard.
0: Well, and think about people who are still living that lived through polio. I mean, we're going through this, this pandemic right now. We're in the second year of this pandemic, but people literally lived through polio. And I'm glad you said that because that was how I was going to sort of wrap this up. It was by saying, if, if you ever have an opportunity to record someone's oral history Mm -hmm. and they're willing to give you that story, that is the greatest gift Mm -hmm. that you can get. And there's so many ways. I mean, you can do it on your phone. You can, I mean, phones are so clear now get that oral history and preserve it and have it there, you know, make a copy and donate it to your college archives or your local public library archives make sure you get their permission. But those are so valuable. Oh, I mean, those, there's nothing like, I mean, history books are great, right. but there's nothing like getting the story From the person who lived it.
1: Especially for small rural communities too. Absolutely. we don't have a lot of recorded history. You know, these small rural communities in the Appalachian region, most of our, our history is word of mouth. So we had a gentleman that lived across the road from us and he passed away last year and he was an incredible storyteller. And I would take my kids over to his house. He had a lot of Indian artifacts and he would tell the stories of them. And I wish, I wish I had taken my phone or I wish I'd taken a notebook and wrote those things down because, you know, as Amy mentioned, talking about the 1930s, 40s, the polio era, we think we live in a hard time right now. Mm -hmm. And we do in Mm -hmm. a way. But I look at what my grandparents Mm endured. You, my great-grandparents, and this is small potatoes.
0: Yeah. What we're having to do right now is nothing compared to the sacrifices Absolutely. that they had to make. And so. we can learn
1: from them. Yeah. We've got a lot to learn from them, but at, at the same token, I think it's our responsibility to get those stories and preserve right. them and be able to share them with our kids and our kids and the grandkids and all that good stuff. So,
0: well, I mean, this was so interesting. Well, thank you. I, I, I think so too, and I, you know, I'm grateful to Frances Fry-Reed for doing that thesis. I'm grateful for the professors that let her do that for her thesis. Yeah, I think absolutely. that's that's all, you know.
1: And let me let me also throw this in there. There's a reason we decided to cover this. Amy had her article. Can you talk about that? She's not yes, going to and
0: write I'll on no. Well, I <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I'll link it. It's okay. actually online now. It was published in Oxford American this past summer. Mm-hmm and it took a while to get it to get it through because pub- the publication process it got bumped a little bit forward but i'm grateful to to oxford american magazine and the publishers for for taking this story and letting me tell this story so if anyone would like to read the whole thing it we'll it we'll make it available on our social accounts absolutely
1: well i mean it was so good to be back in person and i'm looking forward to doing this again doing this quite, hopefully more frequently you know we started our podcasting right as a pandemic kid and it's just kind of been a roller coaster but hopefully things are going to get back in a good routine and we can get on here a little bit more and and be able to share some stories and some people and and just some really good heart-to-heart conversations with you
0: same here so until we talk again Bye. bye